Hey everyone, it's Steve, and I bet you didn't see that one coming. Enneagram, Taxidermies, Coldplay Napster, Burn CDs, DJ Tiesto, and a brief history of electronic music. All that and way more on today's episode of the Assyrian Podcast. It is so good to be here with you on episode number 78, and I'm so excited to introduce you to DJ Michael Badal. There's a saying, Find the job that you love and you'll never have to work a day in your life. And that's exactly what Michael is doing. Through hard work, dedication, and a little bit of luck, he's been able to put max effort toward producing amazing music. Michael first got into producing music back in junior high, and one day, DJ Tiesto, one of the foremost prominent DJs in electronic music, started to play Michael's music, and you're going to hear about that story on this episode. I don't know about you, but music has a way of touching my soul and refreshing my spirit. I could be having a rough day or a week, but I know that there's a certain song I could put on or an album I could put on that takes me to a whole different world. That's what Michael's music does for me, and I think it'll do the same thing for you too. After you're done listening to this episode, I highly encourage you to go on our social media, follow Michael, and get to know his work. He's a proud Assyrian, and he's amazing at what he does, and I'm so excited that we got to have him on the podcast. Also, a special thanks for Michael for mixing our intro for the podcast today. Support for this week's episode of the Assyrian Podcast is brought to you by Tony Caligaracos and the Injury Lawyers of New York and Illinois. If you know anyone that has been in a serious accident, please reach out to Tony Caligaracos. Tony has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and a rising star by Super Lawyer Publication and has obtained multiple multi-million dollar awards. Tony can be reached at InjuryRights.com or 847-982-9516. And now, here is DJ Michael Badal. Well, we're excited to have you. And Michael, one of the things we do with our guests is take us back to where it all started. Your family. Where did they come here from? Where were you born? Where were you raised? Siblings, stuff like that. Oh, for sure. My dad was born in Baghdad. And when he was really young, he moved to Iran. And from there... Do you know uh, why he moved to Iran? I believe it was for work opportunity for my grandfather. And then from there... Again, because of work opportunities, they had a means of getting to America. They moved to Seattle. From Seattle, they made their way down to San Bruno, California. And then eventually, due to like medical circumstances, my dad had to move to L.A. to take care of my grandma, who's still alive and well today. My mom was born in Tehran, and also because of work, my grandfather was able to basically start getting them over to the United States. My mom moved from Iran to Los Angeles, initially living with her family that had already set up shop here, and then my grandparents following after that. And yeah, most of her family resides in Modesto still, but we're living in Santa Clarita, which is a suburb of Los Angeles, really close to Six Flags, California. And for those that don't know, Six Flags is an amusement park with lots of rides. Lots of roller coasters. So Seattle, though, that's unique. I don't think we've ever had a guest who said their parents left uh, the old country for Seattle. Yeah, I don't know if they had a choice. I think the job opportunity required that they move to Seattle, if I'm not mistaken. This could totally be something that I misunderstood. But yeah, they, they started out okay, there that's first. That's what I was wondering. Your grandpa did what business? He was in taxidermy. He literally stuffed animals, uh, like like hunting game, uh, hunting trophies and things like that. And he uh, he got an opportunity to come here and do that for the quote unquote the Americans. So they uh, they made so it. So there here. was business available to taxidermies in yeah Iran and well I I believe if 
if I know my facts correctly, people from the West would come to Iraq or Iran, wherever he was based, and they would hunt exotic wildlife and they'd want it stuffed and shipped back. So that was like the vehicle as to how he was able to to come over to the United States. That's so interesting. Yeah. And I would love to have sat down with your grandpa and been like, how did you even get started in that business? <laughs> I have no idea. Like, how do you learn that trade? In fact, my grandma has shown me photographs of some of the stuff that they had stuffed. And it's gorgeous. Uh, they're all black and white, but he, he stuffed everything from like cougars, tigers, I, I think deer, things like that. Very cool. Yeah. So, so your family leaves leaves Iran, leaves Iraq. They end up in Seattle, end up in SoCal. How mm-hmm. old are you? Oh, I'm you're not, not born. born. I'm not okay, in the picture okay. yet. So you're a United States of America citizen. Yeah. Great. Natural born citizen. Born in Southern California and I've lived there my whole life. <laughs> and any siblings? Yeah, I have a... I'm the oldest. Mm-hmm. I have a brother and a sister, both younger. Uh, my brother is three years younger than me and my sister three years younger than him. So your story just became a lot more fascinating because as the oldest, you're the one that's supposed to set the example. Yeah. And you've definitely <laughs> gone outside the box within the Assyrian world Yeah. by going into being a DJ and techno and trance and all the different music that you do. Uh, what was that like in terms of feeling the pressure as the oldest, yeah. but then not doing the conventional path? Did you go to college? I did. So it was it was kind of, my parents had set up almost like an understanding. They had set up an understanding where music was a hobby, not to not to be confused with something that was a career pursuit and that I would be going to school. And as long as I did my schooling and got good grades, I was able to make music again on a hobby level. I was not uh, I was not sanctioned to go out and perform and things like that. So everything was supposed to be in the bedroom um, and for fun. How old are you the first time you hear electronic music and it grabs you? Six years old. Yeah, I listened. Uh, we were at a birthday party and they had just. I even remember. I remember everything. Are you getting goosebumps right now? Yeah, I am actually. Uh, <laughs> I have a horrible curse that I remember things pretty vividly. I've got a great memory, and it's uh, it's both a gift and a curse. Um, so I'm six years old. We're at a family friend's birthday party for their daughter, and they get this brand new compilation CD called Ultimate Dance Party, and this thing could be compared to the Night at the Roxbury soundtrack. Um, Yeah, I would say kind of like the Night at the Roxbury soundtrack. But at the end of the CD, there was Robert Miles' children on it. So that's the first dance record I ever hear, and I I fall in love with it. And then after that, I don't get any exposure to this stuff until I want to say so. This was I want to say this was 1995, mm-hmm. and it doesn't pop up again until 1998 in my lifetime. And then I hear 9 p.m. till I come by ATB, the one with the bendy guitar, mm-hmm. and. I'm with my cousin Zaya at the time. And I go, this, what is this? I've been looking for things like this. And he goes, oh, that's trance. And I'm like, oh, that's what it is. And by then we have the internet and I can, and we were scouring the internet on Napster, getting our, <laughs> our hands on music illegally as much as we can. And I basically built my knowledge on the dance scene like what's out there what came before what's new what's hot what's the distinctions between the genres i learned all of that like before i even made it to junior high (laughs) that's awesome that at that age you're already dipping in and a few things that came out to me as you're talking so it's robert miles that's what you'd credit to the the children's song to your first techno song always have yeah and so when you heard that you were like mom dad what is this or who who was it the my parents I, I, like my mom liked it because the melody itself it's 
beautiful. It's it's almost like a classical comp- a composition with a disco beat. Like mm-hmm. my parents would have been familiar with that four on the floor beat from disco. So it was almost like a pretty classical song put to a disco beat. So my parents actually liked it. I don't think that they were not necessarily against it, but had a dissatisfaction with it. So, yeah. And that song, it legitimized that genre and gave birth to it in many ways. I mean, I know we'll talk about the origins, mm-hmm. but that's what I'm hearing from you is like that was a song anybody could listen to. Oh, yeah. It hit me. For, it was very profound. It hit me pretty hard. And the other thing that was happening in the world at that time, because people who aren't familiar, before Napster, mm-hmm. how did you get music? You bought CDs. What was the name of the places you'd buy it from? Uh, I used to go to uh, Tower Records. Tower Records was one I bought from, and when they started going under, we switched to Borders and Best Buy. That's right. But Best Buy, you couldn't really find dance music. So, and being in Santa Clarita, there was no Tower Records nearby. So whenever we'd be going to like visit family or something in Hollywood or or somewhere closer to the epicenter of Los Angeles where you had those record stores, if we got a chance to stop by, I had to hit the dance section. And we bought, I don't know, three, four, five different things. Because even then, even though we had to buy CDs, the genre I chose to fall in love with... Only had was, records? No, it was primarily European. Everything was an import CD. So they were more expensive, harder to find, and they weren't available at your local Best Buy. You had to go to these like niche places like Amoeba Music and Tower Records and Borders. And the advent of Napster, it changed everything. Yeah, there was good and bad. Uh, obviously, at what is it? By then, we're, what, 10 years old, 11 years old? Can you explain to folks what Napster is? Yes. So Napster was a program that came out that... It didn't host illegal files, but basically, if I had a song on my computer and you wanted it, Steve, your Napster would find it on my computer and I would be sharing it to you. They call it peer-to-peer sharing or peer-to-peer networking. So basically, it's the equivalent of when you used to burn a CD for a friend. That's illegal. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But we didn't know we were doing something that was illegal the bright side of it is so many artists got discovered and blew up because it was almost like word of mouth on the internet. That was like the first time virality was like a big thing. It's just you never had a localized place to say, oh, look, that's viral. It was no longer about what was playing on the radio. Yeah. It was about how you got your music on Napster. Now anyone could find you. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. I remember being at a party and people were drinking a lot. Why you guys like? What's the occasion? They're like Napster's the occasion. They were they were just <laughs> drinking because like now they had access to all this music and they were and they did find a loophole because they called it sharing. It wasn't yeah. it wasn't stealing straight up. Mm-hmm. So that brought to you a whole new like now all of a sudden Michael's at home. You're downloading MP3s. And yeah. Are you mixing? No, not yet. So uh, just to kind of flash back as far as my love affair with music, uh, I started picking up hand percussion when I was three years old. Can you do one for us? Uh, like right now? Sure. Sure. <laughs> there so, we go. Yeah. Um, I picked that up when I was three. And by the time I was seven, my parents bought me like my first Casio keyboard. And I started learning how to play uh, melodies that I like, primarily Assyrian music by ear and the reason why i liked assyrian music so much was because my mom's brother robert kanishan robert kanishan was a prominent entertainer in the central valley he would play at like the state convention um various like weddings and parties and And their association oh yeah for sure like he was like my musical idol at the time so i wanted to learn how to play keyboards so i taught myself by ear to play that and then his son, my cousin Zaya, bought his first set of turntables at 16. I'm like nine years old. And then I'm listening to dance music being played on records. And that was my first exposure to, to 
DJing, essentially. And then basically we're just adding ingredients into a potion that's going to basically spark my lifelong quest of making dance music. Wow. That is so cool. Yeah. Like so many people, we got to listen to it, but you you were already mixing it together. Yeah. You were already like playing with it, adjusting it, and you were what, in junior high or high school? Uh, when I actually started making the music, yeah. it was junior high. So my first software that I got my hands on to make music was off of a burned CD someone mm-hmm. brought to school. Mm-hmm. It was a program called, at the time it was called Fruity Loops. Wait a second, burned CD, that's specific language for specific culture. So w- remind us, what are burned CDs? So CDs that were blank that you can actually record data onto. This was before we had... USB drives and the cloud. Right. Literally, we we can only give each other data either through floppy disks, which were, was even more archaic, or burned CDs. So this program was so light that it fit on a burned CD. Do you remember what it was called? Fruity Loops. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it's actually expanded to being one of the leading uh uh, digital audio workstations now, but they renamed themselves to FL Studio, oh, okay. so it's not so childish sounding. But um, yeah, somebody gave me a bootleg copy of that software on a CD, and I brought it home, installed it on our Windows 98 machine, and I started messing around with it. And I was like, wait a second, I when I DJ, I I'm playing other people's music, but why don't I make my own? Why don't I play my own music? So that's kind of like where the idea of that started. And I was 13 at the time. That was in 2002 when I started tinkering with production. And that was a couple years after I got my first set of turntables, uh, mimicking my cousin's pursuit of DJing. I really uh, respect and uh, am impressed with your parents who allowed you to do all this and like encouraged it and bought you equipment obviously were involved in your life and what are they doing when they're watching you play this there was always a caveat <laughs> my dad allowed me to to essentially save this birthday money christmas money gifts from grandparents and whatnot um and buy these turntables but he always had the caveat you will not play outside of this house because their impression of the dance music community was drugs and alcohol. Mm -hmm. And like any good parent, they don't want, especially at the time, their 11-year-old son to get exposed to this culture. Sure, 11 years old. Heck no, you got to stay away. Yeah. But in high school, are yeah. you then the guy with the one headphone on and your hand on your ear and mixing? Or are you still not allowed to play even in high school, outside the home? Uh, you could say I was a little manipulative okay. at times where I I was given hall passes to like play a school dance or like somebody's baby shower or you know what I mean? Like things just like, oh, for a family friend, oh, for my school. And it was just kind of like they were giving me an inch and I was hoping to take a yard kind of yeah. thing. So if they gave you, you would give them like PG versions of what you were wanting to do and they would approve. Yeah, basically. Yeah. I mean, my vision was always PG. I think it was mostly a misconception that this culture was primarily based in substance abuse yes. or like uh, overt partying. So through high school, you're playing as many gigs as you possibly can as your parents will let you play. Yeah. You're still a good student, obviously, because they're on you. Yeah, definitely. Were you involved in church at all? Oh, absolutely. At the time, I was going to, in my high school years, I was going to a Catholic uh, American church. And I had started playing drums for the church, which was actually very odd for a Catholic church. We had a full-on band playing hymns which was not a thing. You normally it was like choirs and an organ and that's all you got. Uh, and I played full on drum kit at church since the time I was nine years old. So I was the kid that went to church every Saturday, not Sunday, because it was the youth mass on Saturdays. And I played there every week for the most part 
from the time I was nine until the time I was 19. Whenever you talk to artists, a lot of them in their history is this time in like a choir. Even Linda George has said like that was one of the things that encouraged her. She sang a lot in the choir as, yeah. a, as a young girl. Yeah. So that's good to know that it's even in your background, you're playing drums at that point. Yeah. So would you consider yourself like a professional percussionist? No, because uh, I've... Mm. No, I'm not a professional because I haven't regularly been paid to do that. Mm -hmm. But uh, I do consider myself a drummer because I, I would say I'm beyond a novice drummer. I just don't do it for a living. Gotcha. So what the heck happened that DJ Tiesto discovered you? And for those that don't know, DJ Tiesto is like one of the most famous DJs there is. Yeah. Uh, he's frequently on the Forbes list these so, days. <laughs> so what happened? I mean, you went from like Michael Badal, who's, you know, this Assyrian kid in SoCal who loves this music. He's been making beats in junior high. And then one of the most famous DJs somehow hears your music, finds you. Tell us about that. Yeah. So now we're fast forwarding to I'm 17. It's senior year of high school. I've upgraded my equipment now from being on that Windows 98 machine with Fruity Loops and now I'm producing on a Mac, I've got Logic Pro and I spend a couple years doing that and I get my first record deal. Uh, I put out a record with a UK label called Baroque Records. It doesn't do as well as I wanted but the fact that I got on that label kind of started a buzz of uh, who's this 17-year-old kid that got a record deal with Baroque Records? That's a big deal. The record didn't do as well as I wanted, and then somebody turned me on to distributing my own music myself, and I wanted to give that a shot. So I take a song, I release it on my own imprint, and I do that in quotations, my own imprint at the time. What does that mean, imprint? Uh, record label. I like, see. I started my oh, own yeah, yeah. It's record like company. Yeah, uh, you ha I had to give it a name, and I had to, like, s sign a DBA and all that stuff. Wait, did you, like... Oh, wait, these were CDs then? You were not MP3s? Or oh, no. The, by then, we've moved on, uh, moved into the digital realm. Okay, so, so these th are CDs you're a, creating. Uh, it was actually MP3s okay. online. Yeah, yeah. The, streaming wasn't a thing, but in the DJ world, vinyl is dying because music starts to get faster in the sense that songs don't live for six months anymore. They live for about a month before you move on to the next song. So in order to keep up with that, you can't keep pressing vinyl every month. You move to the digital age. So I decide I'm gonna put my stuff out there. And there's a store that is still around today called Beatport. That is where all of your favorite DJs, if you have any favorite DJs, get their music, if it's not being sent to them for free, they buy it there. So, I self-published this song. And I have no idea what promotion is or getting the word out, sending tasters to DJs to play out. I have no idea. I just put this record out and I'm over here in Santa Clarita about to press a like a mix CD so I could pass out at school so people know I'm a DJ. <laughs> Again, no social media at the time. And I'm picking up the CDs from the guy that's pressing them for me. He hands me the box of CDs and he goes, oh, hey, by the way, great job on the uh, Tiesto play. I go, what? He goes, you didn't know? Tiesto played your song. And I go, no, that, no that's got to be. He's like, M the song's Colors, right? I go, yeah, Colors. He goes, yeah, Tiesto played it last night. 
And I go, okay, we got to get home because we don't have smartphones. I need to get to a computer so I can look this up. I hop online and lo and behold, he opens his radio show with my with my track. Wow. How did he find it? He, I didn't send it to him. So that means this guy or whoever's working for him to like compile music that might be good found it on Beatport. He totally, it just got found on Beatport by accident uh, or by divine intervention. And Tiesto plays it on his radio show. And then I get an email from the guy that runs the radio show going, Ties, which is, that's his name, Ties, really likes your track. Do you have any more? I go, well, yeah. (laughs) I send, I start, from that point on, I start feeding him music. And no matter what I fed him, he played it on, on the radio. And automatically, that just kind of gave me license that at 17 years old, I, I can do this. Um, yeah. And then with the advent of YouTube, I started finding videos of him playing it live in front of like stadium audiences. So, let's put that in perspective. You're doing something you've loved doing your whole life. And then one of the best in the business decides they're going to play your music. Yeah. Wow. It the thing that's crazy is that by complete chance, we we didn't know about promotion, we didn't know about sending things out to DJs ahead of time to get them to basically play it on the radio or in the clubs. We didn't know. So somebody with a very kind heart passed it over to him for sure. And he played it on his In Search of Sunrise tour all year in 2007 did you get any royalties for that oh yeah yeah uh, definitely um it's not handsome in in terms of its financial rewards but uh it was something but uh the uh, amount of work that it got me though was insane so that happened in 2007 in 2008 the following year I went on to remix for Above and Beyond, which are a Grammy Award winning, uh, sorry, Grammy Award nominated trance group. I remixed for Andy Moore, who's my, who was my idol at the time and ended up becoming actually really close friends with him. Uh, did that, uh, remixed for um, Mayon and Chain 54. A lot of you guys might know them from the song Strangers. Uh, pretty big song with Tovlo that they ended up doing. Um, so basically these A-listers I started getting remix work for in 2008, all because this guy put his stamp of approval on it. Nothing else. And the rest is history? Pretty much. Like, it, Tiesto pretty much kick-started my career. Yeah, and then did you do your bachelor's all at this time as well? Yes. Where did uh, you get your bachelor's in? In filmmaking, Mm -hmm. but with an emphasis in audio. It was a technical bachelor's degree. So my emphasis was in post-production, audio editing, audio mixing, sound design, that kind of thing. So back when that first happened, you're still obviously grounded because you're not like, oh, I'm an amazing DJ now. I'm going to just go touring for the rest of my life or get lost in that world. So you're still grounded. You're still going to do your schooling. Yeah. And... What's going on in the Assyrian community and your relationship within the Assyrian community while this is all happening? At the time, I think it was because I didn't have my own means of transportation up until the time I was 18. And at the time, Santa Clarita was kind of isolated. We had some Assyrians, but now it's like really grown. We have a big community of Assyrians there now. But at the time, we weren't going to Assyrian church. We barely went to like Assyrian parties and things like that. So outside of my connection to my own family, like extended or immediate family, I didn't have a close relationship to uh, my culture. And it wasn't until, I want to say, 09, when I started making friends because I had my own car and things like that and going to state convention and national convention that I started making friends and, and hanging out with the Syrians and being involved in the community. Uh, so I was a late bloomer <laughs> on and, that. And did the Assyrian community embrace your techno stuff? I don't think that they were neither here nor there. They weren't 
supportive, but they weren't not supportive either. It was just kind of there. Like, mm-hmm. oh, this guy DJs. Like, that That was it. Yeah, but the DJing you're doing is hitting a broad audience. It's not really within the Assyrian community. Like, you don't really DJ Assyrian parties very much. No, and I always get gutted every time someone asks me because I want to help out. But it's just not what I do. I don't have the, the repertoire for it, and it's not something I ever set out to do. Before the podcast, we were talking about the history of techno. Mm-hmm. So tell us when you think techno officially like came into the world. Techno itself, I believe, started with Kraftwerk. Oh, okay. That Zombie Nation song? No, no. That's Current Craft 400. <laughs> okay. Kraftwerk was a band uh, from Germany, I believe. Uh, and they were making stuff as early as I believe the nineteen late nineteen seventies, and everyone has sampled them ever since. So they kind of infused rock with synthesis, and um, in fact, the most prominent example I could tell you is: do you listen to Coldplay? Mm-hmm. Have you heard the song "Talk"? Yeah, it's one. Of, it's my favorite Coldplay song. Okay, you know the middle section where everything gets quiet and starts going. Yes. Yes. And it goes crazy after that. That is yes. a sample of a Kraftwerk Are song. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Oh my god. It's not Coldplay's, and they even credit Kraftwerk in the booklet. So I believe techno started in its early stages with them. The first house song, the first dance music song with synthesizers, with a club. What year was it? Wait, that was Kraftwerk was 70s? I want to say they were the late 70s. I might have that wrong. Wait, before you go on to your next point, does disco connect to any of this? Yes, it's a predecessor though. I think disco was its own thing. It had its own era and it influenced dance music. But I don't think the two uh, would would kind of like meld together until later on. It's a whole new permutation, basically. Yes, uh, there is a there is a gentleman by the name of Giorgio Moroder. Uh, have you heard of him? No, you haven't. No, Giorgio Moroder is an iconic music producer, and he worked very much in the disco scene. And if you guys listen to Daft Punk's latest album, when I mean latest, I mean from six years ago because they haven't put anything new out. They have a song called Giorgio by Moroder where they basically interview Giorgio Moroder over an eight minute long composition that takes you through the different stages of his musical styles. And essentially, this man creates house music inadvertently. He synchronizes a synthesizer to a drum machine, and the song was called I Feel Love by Donna Summers. That's right. I know that song. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. That is the first time. And that's a 70s song. Yep. Because when you listen to it, it didn't have to be 70s. It could be... Yeah. So from that point on, I think that set the trajectory to basically start house music, which house music actually... Was developed in Chicago, uh, in the underground clubs of Chicago. They used to have uh, a club called the Warehouse, uh, and that's where it came out. That's where the name came out. House music, the stuff that they play at the warehouse. Um, yeah, the, that's kind of that's that's like your <laughs> Go, going back to that Donna Summer song. Like that's not as big as like any Beatles song. No. Right? It's no. it's not as big. Yeah, it's the origin. Oh is yeah. That, is that the hint? That's like the first like, hey, wait a second, you can do something different here? Yeah. And I, I don't want to say that that was the end all be all, but as far as any popular stretch of the imagination, I think we can I think we can reasonably pinpoint that song as the start of electronic dance music. What is it about elect I want to come back to the 80s and the 90s and the progression. Yeah. But what is it about the sounds of even like that Donna Summer song? What is it about this music that brings people into it, that moves people? 
it's I tr- I've tried to read about it on a scientific level just to kind of like figure it out. It's just one perspective, but the perspective is that a lot of people a lot of people get drawn to this this beat because our heart rate generally is at a 120 beats per minute. So our hearts when we're at an active state, a healthy active state is literally going and so scientists tend to say like one of the studies i was reading was that the reason why we like that so much is because it kind of just aligns with what's going on in your body anyway and then meld that with melancholy melodies like you can go from uh happy to euphoric to uplifting to sad it but it no matter what it's an emotion it's either extreme joy or sadness, but no matter what, it's to that beat. Mm-hmm. Something about that beat that touches you because it, it reminds you of what's going on inside. Mm-hmm. So when you're writing your music, and I know we're jumping all off in this conversation, but when you're writing your music, are you then saying, I want to speak to people? I want to say something through this sounds? I wish I could say yes, but... I honestly think I'm just satisfying my geek, like, desire to either learn something new or to express my own self. Even with when I performed as a DJ, I kind of played my sets for myself. And because I had confidence that I liked it, it's a little arrogant, but I'm assuming that you will too. Like, you'll get it. Mm -hmm. Um, So whether it be from my live sets or to my compositions... I was honestly writing for myself, hoping that it would resonate with someone else. Yeah, I've heard it said you can't impart what you don't have. Yeah. So in in many ways for you, it's got to touch you or it's not going to touch anyone else. I agree. Which is really cool. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's authentic. It's genuine. It means, it means you have a deep connection with your music. Yeah. So... I, I mean, some of the stuff, like... Uh, I don't know if you listened to my classical album at all, uh, Seasons. I listened to like a lot of it, but I don't remember the names because there's no words. Oh, no, no <laughs> Usually problem. there's yeah. no words. Yeah, yeah. Not going off of that. It's just I, I listen back to some of those things. Some of those compositions actually have like a life event attached to them. So there's a backstory. Yeah, to some of them, there's, uh, there's just moments of absolute sorrow just going through... I don't know, like teenage angst or whatever, or young adult angst. And the only way to get over it for me is to write it, like to just play it out. One of the songs, Face the Storm, as you could tell from the the name itself, it was actually an improvised piano piece. And then I was like, okay, now that I got that out of my system, like literally in tears playing the piano, this is actually really cool. <laughs> what can I do with it? And I basically start building the composition around that improvised piano piece but that that piano piece meant a lot the story you just explained being in tears and and coming up with this music that's in some ways it's therapeutic for you would you consider yourself more analytical or more emotional by far more emotional really because as i interact with you yeah you seem very like analytical smart uh not thrown here or there by their emotions I appreciate that, but <laughs> what's funny is uh, one of my best friends, he's a, he's a YouTube star, quote-unquote. You don't even need to quote. He is a YouTube star. Uh, his name is Matthias. He got really infatuated with uh, taking Enneagram persona- personality tests. Are you a four? I'm a four. How did you know? <laughs> I love the Enneagram. Oh, no way. Yeah, yeah I'm a four. I wouldn't have you were a four. I thought you were a five, actually. That's why I was saying That's you seem crazy. pretty analytical. Yeah, me. I'm a four. Yeah. I'm a... Uh, some people say... Uh, some some of the tests say the explosive... The explosive dreamer. Others say the intense creative. Like, I feel things very intensely and it's explosive. And then I could just kind of like... It, the moment's gone. You are it's, the right personality type to be an artist (laughs) and it's good that you found that because if you hadn't have found it 
you may have just bottled up your emotions or not had a proper outlet, right? Yeah, and it's just I'm trying to be more self-aware because like as far as the way it works in my personal life, sometimes like my mom and I if she's listening, I'm sorry. <laughs> like there's just sometimes uh they see you in a bad mood, but you don't even know why you're in a bad mood. You know what I mean? There's nothing wrong. Works fine. Friends are great. Uh, family's awesome, but I'm still just in a rut for some reason, and I don't know why. I think as an artist, you're carrying things for people. Often you are carrying some someone else's hurt or pain because you feel it, because you've got that gift, whereas someone else is, is more analytical. <laughs> like, you know, maybe they just need a good night's rest. Um <laughs> So it's, you didn't sleep enough, <laughs> right? Yeah. So I really appreciate that you're able to like convert this energy, this emotion into music for all of us to be able to like enjoy and get refreshed by. I mean, it, it's uh, it's a little selfish on my part because I love doing it too. So it's very unique. I, I think that's one of the greatest pains in the world today is is people whose personality doesn't match the job they're doing the life career path whatever it is the relationship they're in there's just there's some work that needs to be done to align those yeah and that's why when i meet someone who like it aligned it's a miracle like it's a gift you know the you could be sitting here being like you know steve i do v lookups and pivot tables all day long at my accounting <laughs> job i actually wanted to be an attorney at one point because like my parents i mean just like any other assyrian immigrant parent they want what's best for you they want you to do better than what they did so they they preach stability a lot uh taking i don't want to say the safe route but something that will keep you comfortable raise a family and things like that so for a long time i thought i was going to be an attorney but i don't know if i could do that now now what you're doing now in terms of making music Mm -hmm. it is lucrative for you right uh, I've gotten to the point now where I could say that I have a normal professional job. Somebody at my age, it's like a respectable, normal, Good. professional job. I'm not quote unquote balling, but yeah. uh, it, but it's it's I'm doing very well. The fact that I'm you're very gainfully, grateful for it. You're gainfully employed because of your DJing work and because of my best friend actually as well. Just to like put that out there. Uh, yes, music is lucrative, but a lot of my income is coming from my work uh, in pop music, which uh, is not my passion project that we've been talking about for, for I don't know how long now. But to pay the bills, I've been making pop music, and uh, it's for a company that my friend owns. So it, it's now it's become lucrative my skills are being used in the correct way not in a boring way but it just in a different genre than what is my quote-unquote passion project yeah and i think i think that's more than fine when we you know what is the saying steal from peter to pay mary or oh stay from Uh, peter to pay paul or something like that yeah yeah so we all have to do one job to kind of fund maybe another job in to a degree. Yeah. I also want to go back and say, look, there are people who are built and made and find accounting incredibly passionate. And that's yeah, a healthy thing. I, all I was saying is that someone like you, for example, it lined up. Personality to the craft. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. This makes me even more excited to kind of listen to more of your music now. <laughs> now I'm going to like dive in. I want to be like... What was going on with Michael at this point? How does it relate to my life? And, (laughs) you know, this one, I'm going to stay here for a while because I'm in that season. Uh, Let's go back to the history of techno because we dropped off on that and never came back. So Donna Summers, then what happens? Uh, From there we have, it's basically called either house music or techno. Techno kind of had the more mechanical, rigid timing, um, and then from there, it starts to get more melodic, and the the early versions of trance comes out. And all of these things are coexisting. It's not shifting from one to another. It's a tree that starts as a stem or a trunk, and it starts branching off. So, yes, we start out with, 
let's say, house and techno, and then they splinter off into trance and drum and bass and Euro pop and all that stuff, but none of it ever dies. All of it still exists even in 2019. They just kept splintering off and starting these subcultures within dance music. Can all you of name it is some under, of those for us? Uh, yeah, uh, for instance, trance, for instance, is now split off into a bunch of subgenres of even that. We have progressive trance, we have side trance, we have uplifting trance, we have dream trance, which is what Robert Miles' children is considered. Um, all of that, or tech trance as well, a lot of Sander Van Dorn, things that are heavy with bass, not too much melody and very aggressive. So you have a genre that splinters off from dance and that even gets splintered off even further into subcategories. Even house music, uh, there is deep house and soulful house and funky house and French house and uh, it just electro house. It just goes on and on and on and on. <laughs> One thing I've had a hard time with as I get older is when I was younger, I loved going out dancing, right? Yeah. Even at like weddings um, or wherever there's a good place to go dancing go dance with friends now when i go to like a bar or a club or whatever it is and there's music it's as if there's six songs playing all at once yeah and i'm like how am i supposed to dance to this what is going on in today's music like and it's also very uh, it's missing a harmony to a degree yeah it's like all these different noises i'll be honest with you it's that that when it's done well it's fantastic. That's a that's a uh, a technique called ma uh, mashing up or mashups. Uh, that's taking elements from multiple songs and creating something new out of them. There's nothing original being written. There's nothing being produced. It's literally a copy and paste job. You could do it in Audacity. You could do it in, in Adobe Audition. Whatever you want to do it in. Uh, but when it's done well, it's really great. And if you can remind me to send you, I'll send you an example of one that I did. Uh, I was playing my album tour in 2015, and there were certain clubs I was playing that I needed to be a little more commercial. I couldn't really play the underground stuff that I really liked because the crowd isn't there for that. Mm -hmm. So, but I, there were some songs I really wanted to play. So what I did, the this technique that you're experiencing in other clubs. I found the song that I wanted to play, and it, this one in particular was uh, Strange World by Push. It's an old trance song. This guy, uh, uh, he's a friend of mine, his name is Andrew Bayer, made an updated version for 2015, and it drops. And everybody kept telling me, don't play it at these clubs. It's too trancey. It's, it's too emotional. The break is way too long. So I needed to find a vocal to put over it and it needed to be the right key now the reason why you're having this non-cohesion at these weddings and things like that oftentimes people will just mash up things just to mash up things they won't be the right time signature the right the right beats per minute the right key but when all of those things align it sounds like a brand new song so for that song i found the vocals to beautiful now by zed and it was the same key same BPM, same time signature, and it lined up perfectly. So here's your analytical side coming out. <laughs> so there, there is some brains behind this emotion. <laughs> right? You're, you're, math, yeah. you're mathematically doing all of this. Like, all this beats per minute, I'm like, that sounds great. You know, tell me more. So do you have your calculator out when you're, when you're putting this stuff together? Honestly, what's funny is I hated math as a subject in school, but one time I was trying to subdivide, this was before I had the tool to do it, I was trying to subdivide beats per minute into milliseconds <laughs> because I was trying to get a delay in, in my production software, something that echoes. A delay is basically if I were to go uh, Steve and it goes Steve, 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 Steve. That's mm -hmm. a delay. A reverb is more of like a room noise, like a hallway. Um, so a delay, I needed the, the milliseconds as to which to repeat so it'll be on beat. So I went on to Google and I found the formula and I had to literally plug 
my numbers into that calculation to get the milliseconds right. So, and then I, I stopped myself and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm doing math. <laughs> what? Maybe back when they I'm used to I'm such a say, nerd. Yeah. They used to be like, I'm never going to use this. Why am I learning? There, there you go. Do you know how many times I've used cross-multiplying from algebra? It's insane. Like, <laughs> I'll come up with things like, if one of these costs this much, how many? How much is it going to cost for this much of these? And I'll cross-multiply. I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> I'm doing algebra. Love it. Math is coming back. Yeah. So what I the other part of your story that I want to highlight is you're still so young, man. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so, so actually, like you still have at least thirty to sixty years of making music. What's gonna happen? Uh, honestly, I'm I'm happy to finally come to terms with that because uh, for a while, actually, I kind of went through a little bit of a rut in my mid twenties because I wasn't the young guy anymore. Things were much easier in terms of marketing because it's like, oh my god, a seventeen year old did it. Um, so getting closer to 30, I was like, shoot, I'm not superstar status. What am I going to do? But that's what kind of made me think practically, think practically on how can I make this a career and continue to make music and make a living off of it. And it's really come down to don't say no to opportunities. Uh, do what you want to do in terms of your passions, but also maintain what is practical. Like right now for me, it's producing pop music. In the future, I really want to score film. And one thing I've noticed is a lot of guys don't even get into that field until their 50s. It's kind of like John Williams stuff? Yeah. Uh, most most recently, Junkie XL is actually one of my one of my biggest influences aside from Hans Zimmer. The reason why those two guys are such big influences to me is because they don't know how to read music. They don't know how to read a single note. I did not know that. Yeah. They know how to make music on a computer using MIDI controllers just like me. And an orchestrator does it after the fact. Like, they didn't need to know scales and what key a trumpet is in and whatnot. They made it on a computer. They handed over the the MIDI files to an orchestrator and an orchestrator started doing everything else and getting it conducted and recorded. And the reason why Junkie XL is such a big influence is because he started out in dance music. The guy was huge. He remixed everyone from BT to Moby to, uh, he had his, his uh, music used in the old Blade movie with Wesley Snipes. Mm -hmm. um, so he was huge in the electronic realm and then he wanted to do film scoring and he worked his butt off and got in and was an understudy of Hans Zimmer and basically got rewarded with his first film. It was uh, the second part of 300, the Rise of, Rise of the Empire or something like that. And then from there he did Mad Max Fury Road. So I'm sitting here, I'm like, that, that could be something I want to do and I want to work on that. I could that. see you in that role, actually. I would love that. Like when... When I'm too old and decrepit to be a dance music producer, mm -hmm. <laughs> I'd love to. I'd love to get into film. Yeah, Hans Zimmer did Gladiator, right? He did, and that's one of the best soundtracks. I got to see him live when he took his show on the road. <laughs> I actually like. I legit cried during the Gladi Gladiator portion of the concert. Now, when are you going to start working toward inroads in that field? Uh, I already have been. So that was the reason why I made Seasons. Seasons was kind of like an experiment for myself. I started making these classical compositions just to see if I could do it and how real I can make it sound based off of these software instruments. And then I started seeing a lot of these guys that got in, got in through movie trailers. And those movie trailers found their compositions off of albums. So then I thought, okay, so then I shouldn't just be making dance music albums. I should be making classical albums. So I kind of buckled down. I put everything off in 2018 as far as like dance music went. And I just went hard into completing this classical album. And in about eight months, I finished it. And it's out on iTunes now. 
and it actually went top 40 on iTunes. It sold really well uh, in the digital world. Um, and now it's just, it's it's content that's there ready to be licensed. I see. So someone's going to come across it when they're looking for music that's going to match a scene or match their movie. And, yeah. and that's when you could possibly get a call. Yes. So uh, a friend of mine who's actually a, a very well-known Assyrian music producer, he does uh, music for uh, television, mostly reality television. He, he goes by Young Mozart. I don't know if you've heard of him. I've heard of that. Yeah, I didn't know they were Assyrian. Uh, yeah, his name's David Corcus. And he, one of the biggest pieces of, of, of advice that he's always given me and my cousin Zaya is create. No matter what, create. Even though you're not monetizing it now, having it for that phone call when somebody goes, hey, Michael, uh, I listened to your stuff. I'd really like to see what else you got. You don't want to be on that phone call and go, oh, well, can you give me a couple weeks? I'll come up with something. It, just creating and having that on, on the back burner. You're working now for your future. So, yeah. Man, I, I just love listening to the life of an artist and um, I'm, I'm excited for you. And now I'm thinking, you know, this is someone I want to follow and just watch as you grow and keep transforming. Um, I feel like, you know, we could talk for a few more hours. <laughs> I'd, I'd love to kind of d dive deep with you into different mixes and stuff. But is there anything you wanted to make sure we talked about during this episode? Uh, not really. I kind of came into this just wanting to have a fun conversation. And I've had a blast so far. Yeah. To be honest. Like, I've... I don't have anything to promote or anything. <laughs> Great. <laughs> or a book to, like... <laughs> your, all your stuff is on Spotify, right? We can download it anytime we want. Yeah. Get it on iTunes. Mm-hmm. So, um, all right. Well, one of the questions I love to ask people in closing on the Assyrian podcast is if you could say anything to all the Assyrians that listen all over the planet, uh, what would Michael Badal say? Oh. And you can take a minute to think and, yeah. then, and then respond. What I would say is I am very grateful that by my lucky stars, God decided to line my genetic code with the genetic code of an Assyrian because our culture is so rich. Our history is so rich. And we are a surviving indigenous people. And that in and of itself is a unique story all on its own. And I hope that we can continue to pro progress and move forward and uh, continue to innovate and create art and inventions and innovations and, and everything that can move our, our people forward. Um, and thank you for your support that I have received from you guys and uh, the well wishes and, and great comments. And I, I hope you guys continue to support me. Of course we're going to yeah. keep supporting you. <laughs> we do want to know if you're ever going to make an Assyrian greatest hits techno. Like if you grabbed all the Assyrian <laughs> music that's out there and made just a really cool trance or techno. Yes. I honestly haven't thought of that. If the artists were to give you permission like to use it, would you do it? Would you sample their stuff? If the songs were viable, like 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 if they translated well to dance music, yeah, yeah that'd be fun. Some of them might, right? Yeah. And uh, in the past though, like just kind of being on the the subject of our of our community, the one thing that I have been really grateful to do is work within the community uh, on a kind of like a behind the scenes type of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, Akkad Saadi and Sergon Saadi called me up, uh, I think it was earlier this year, and we produced a uh, a Betkanu song for people. I, I basically just donated my, my time. Yeah. That's all I did to track vocals and mix it down and master it. Um, they had a singer named Georgie. She came in and, and did it in both Western Assyrian and Eastern Assyrian. Uh, aside from that, the album Seasons, I put it out as vinyl, and the vinyl proceeds 
all went to uh, the Tutti Institute. Very uh, cool. So I have been doing behind the scenes work. I haven't really found like where my place is in the uh, the, the musical realm. Yeah, of Assyrian music. I I'm not. I'm to... not closed off to it. Right. It's just I haven't found what isn't forced or what makes sense yet. You're a. You are a true artist, man. You are waiting <laughs> for that spirit to come, and that's when you're gonna jump on it. So. Yeah. Anyway, thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks and, for having uh, me. It's been a blast, dude. Thanks, me too. I've had such a good time. <laughs>